All right, if we can get everybody in here, we'll get started. Uh, tonight, Robbie is going to start a series on uh, the book of Jude, and uh, he will. he's done these, prepared these ahead of time, so we'll have a whole series on this. So uh, I'll just turn it over to our cameraman, and we'll get started. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our Bible study today... We're going to begin a brand new study in this lesson on the epistle of Jude. But before we get started, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. We need to have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for the study of God's Word. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we break fellowship with God. And the way to recover fellowship and to resume our walk by means of the Holy Spirit is to confess our sins. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can come together to study your word, to be strengthened, encouraged, by your word to be taught, uh, what you have to say to us, what you have had recorded in your word for our benefit. Father, we pray that as we study uh, today that we might come to an understanding of the general message of this epistle, why it is important for us, and that God the Holy Spirit can use this to challenge us in terms of our own, our own spiritual growth, our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today we're going to start a study in the epistle of Jude. This is the last epistle in the organization of the English Bible before the book of Revelation. It is usually called one of the general epistles. If you look at a Bible handbook or survey of the New Testament, but it is actually uh, one of five Jewish epistles in the New Testament. In the first century, of Christianity, there were was still a large segment of Christians who were Jewish, and there were a number of primarily Jewish congregations scattered around the Roman Empire in the diaspora. These Jewish congregations received five of the 21 epistles in the New Testament. If you look at many introductions, though, they will not emphasize that. One of the reasons is that they uh, have not understood this historically. I think Arnold Fruchtenbaum has done a wonderful job in bringing this out 
and in emphasizing this. Uh, part of the reason that this is misunderstood, for example, is that uh, because of allegorical interpretation, when Peter wrote in 1 Peter that he was writing from Babylon, uh, number one, the Roman Catholic Church had elevated him to a position of priority among the apostles, and so they thought that he was in Rome, and so they looked at Babylon as a code word for Rome. However, if we believe in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture, Babylon must mean Babylon, Rome must mean Rome, Jerusalem must mean Jerusalem. And this makes sense because if Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and the, one of the largest communities, in fact, the largest Jewish community outside of Jerusalem was in Babylon. And so it makes sense that Peter would have gone to Babylon to proclaim the message that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, the descendant of David, who had come to offer the kingdom to Israel, but instead was rejected, was crucified, but he rose from the grave the third day and that he is now in heaven awaiting the time when the Father will give him the kingdom and he will return as the Son of Man, as predicted in Daniel uh, chapter 7. Now, in the community of the first century, Christians faced two basic problems. All Christians, but in some ways there was a special emphasis on this within the Jewish community. Uh, the first problem was a problem of persecution problem of persecution uh, against Christians, and for the Jewish believers, it would come from both the pagans and the Roman Empire as well as from certain Jews within the Jewish community who rejected Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. The second area of, of, uh, of conflict was within the church, with Outside the church, you have the problem of false teaching. Inside the, or the problem of persecution. Inside the church, you have the problem of false doctrine. And there were those, as we know from Acts chapter 20, as, as Paul warned the Ephesian elders, that there would be those who would come, uh, even from among those uh, leaders in Ephesus, who would be wolves among the flock. But especially within the Jewish community, there were false teachers who came and synthesized uh, various uh, uh, doctrines that had started to become popular within the Jewish community that did not have their base in the Hebrew Old Testament but had their base in uh, apocryphal works uh, that were a blend of Greek philosophy, a blend of, of other uh, philosophical systems and religious systems that were beginning to synthesize uh, in the Jewish community with uh, traditional Jewish uh, teaching based on the uh, based on the Old Testament. So of these five Jewish epistles, Hebrews, James, first and second Peter, and Jude, two of them focused on this problem of false doctrine. Uh, second Peter was a warning that false teachers would come into the congregation. Jude is writing to say that they are now present. So I believe Second Peter was written before Jude, and we'll look at that uh, a little bit more as we go through our introduction. Now, these believers at that time uh, lived within this pluralistic society in Rome where there were many different religious uh, beliefs, really a number of different religious systems that had uh, come from the not only traditional uh, Greco-Roman uh, religions, but also from ideas that were synthesized 
from outside the Greco-Roman culture. For example, you had ideas that came from, uh, from Asia Minor, uh, from Turkey, from that area, such as the uh, Dionysian or the Bacchus uh, uh, cult and the Sibylli Attis cult and the uh, Eleutherian, uh, Eleutherian uh, mysteries, other uh, ideas like that. So there was a challenge to believers to stand firm in the faith, as uh, the Apostle Paul had, had warned them as well. And so the message of Jude is to contend for the faith. This is seen in verse 3, where he says, I thought it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly, for the faith which was once for all delivered uh, to the saints. And so we have this uh, little cartoon put together uh, by the uh, people at, uh, at the uh, Walk Through the Bible Ministries, uh, just as, as a little visual emphasizing the main theme of, of Jude, which I thought was uh, one way to get this into your minds. And so you have these two wrestlers uh, contending for the prize of the faith. Uh, contending means to to struggle. It's often used in athletic contests where one person is struggling, one person is uh, working out and uh, uh, in order to overcome any obstacles, in order to uh, win the contest or win the prize. And so this is the basic idea. The issue here isn't isn't salvation, which is a free gift of God. The issue is for these believers after salvation to not fall by the wayside, do not give up, do not get influenced by uh, false teaching or false doctrine. The issue isn't their eternal destiny in heaven. The issue is whether or not uh, they would be a success or a failure at the judgment seat of Christ. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Now, let's get into the book of Jude itself. Who was Jude? The authors identified in Jude 1. In the first verse, we read, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, the problem is, which Jude is he? In the Greek, it's Judas the same name that we have for Judas Iscariot. And actually, there were eight different people uh, in the New Testament who went by the name of Jude. It comes from the Hebrew name Judah, uh, one of the 12 sons of, of, uh, of uh, Isaac, and Judah means praise. It was a very popular name in Israel in the first century because in more recent times it was the name of Judas Maccabeus who had led the Jews in a revolt uh, against the uh, Syrians during the Maccabean Revolt, which dated about 160 B.C. So you have eight different people identified by this name in the New Testament. The first is the son of the patriarch, Jacob, are Israel in Matthew 1, 2 to 3, and Luke 3, 33. Second, there's the mention of a an ancestor of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 3, verse 30. Third, there is the reference to Judas Iscariot, uh, for example, one listing in Mark 3, 19. Fourth, there's the mention of a one who's also known as Thaddeus, one of the original 12 disciples, and also a, a, an apostle who is either the son or the brother of one known as James. This is 
and Luke 6.16. He's mentioned also in John 14.22 and Acts 1.13. There's another Judas who was a Galilean rebel mentioned in Acts 5.37, a uh, pseudo-Messiah. Six, there's a native of Damascus in Act, mentioned in Acts 9, verse 11, uh, to whom Paul went uh, a short time after his conversion. Seventh, we have uh, another Judas who accompanied Paul, Barnabas, and Silas on a trip to Antioch. He's mentioned in Acts 15.22, Acts 15.27, and Acts 15.32. He went there with Paul and Barnabas and Silas when they were returning from the Jerusalem Council, which was covered in the earlier parts of Acts 15. His surname was Barsabbas, and it's possible that he was uh, the brother of Joseph Barsabbas, who was one of the two uh, men who were possible candidates uh, for uh, replacing Judas Iscariot, mentioned in Acts 1.23. The other, of course, was uh, Matthias, who was the one who was... Uh, chosen to replace Judas in that chapter. And then we have the eighth person mentioned who is Jude, the brother of James and the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's mentioned in Mark 6, 3 and Matthew 13, uh, 55. The three most likely options are Judas, the apostle, that would be number four, also known as Thaddeus. Uh, second, would be Judas, a leader in the Jerusalem church. That would be the seventh one, the one who accompanied Paul, Barnabas, and Silas. And then the third option is the one that is uh, thought to be the author of this epistle by most people, and that is Jude, the half-brother of, uh, of Jesus, the last one in our list. We can be pretty sure that this is who the author is of this epistle just by a process of elimination that the other seven don't seem to fit uh, the qualifications of one who would write Scripture. Uh, since Jude was a common first-century name, he identifies himself not only as a bondservant or slave of, of Jesus Christ, but as a brother of James. Uh, as such, he would be choosing a James that was of prominence, someone who would be known among the uh, his readers, and so this, the most prominent James, would be the one who was the leader in the Jerusalem church, who is also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and the author of the epistle uh, that goes by his name, the epistle of James. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 15, verses uh, 13, uh, 13 to 21. We see that uh, both Jude and James are mentioned in the list of Jesus' brothers in Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 55, where we read, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So James and Judas, that is Jude, are both mentioned in Matthew 13, uh, 55. He is not the full brother of the Lord Jesus Christ because the Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. Now, there is some uh, dispute by some people, uh, some Christians who do not believe that uh, Mary had any other children. 
and they try to interpret passages like Matthew 13:55 as a reference to either cousins or one claim is that these were Joseph's sons by another another marriage but there is no indication anywhere in in uh in the scripture that Mary remained a virgin or this doctrine of her perpetual uh, her perpetual virginity uh, external evidence from the early church supports the view that that this Jude in Jude 1 is indeed the half-brother of, of Jesus. And I think it's interesting to note that both Jude and James in the opening of their uh, epistles uh, do not link themselves to Jesus. They do not say Jude or James, the half-brother of Jesus. This shows a certain amount of humility, but also a recognition that they were only brothers to Jesus in terms of his humanity because they shared the same mother, but both Jude and James had Joseph as their father, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ uh, did not come through uh, through Joseph. Um, the fact that Jude was... Uh, the half-brother of Jesus is supported by a number of people in the early church, including Hegesippus, who uh, we do not have his writings, but he's quoted by Eusebius, who tells us that Jude also had sons and grandsons. And because these grandsons were members of the house of David, remember, through uh, through their father Joseph, even though that was from the line of Caniah, and so that was the cursed line, they were still members of the house of David, the emperor Domitian viewed them as potential leaders of a revolt against Rome and had them brought before him uh, his judgment seat. In their defense, they showed their calloused hands to the emperor, proving that they were just simple farmers who were not seeking an earthly kingdom but a heavenly one, and uh, the record shows that they were released and they lived into the second, uh, the second century. Other um, other sources among the early church fathers also support the fact that this epistle was accepted as uh, as scripture, and it was written by Jude, the half brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the short writing, the Shepherd by Hermas, as well as Polycarp, who was a, a student or disciple of the Apostle John, as well as Theophilus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome. Uh, Barnab- the Epistle to Barnabas, Epiphanes, the Muratorian Canon, which is a partial listing of the books that were accepted as canonical. Uh, it's dated to around 160, 165 uh, A.D. All include uh, Jude as part of the Scripture. Um, some scholars have argued that another Jude wrote it. For example, Cal- Calvin identified the author as the apostle, that is, Judas, the son of James, or Thaddeus. Uh, But if this were correct, the author author would have called himself an apostle to assert his authority. The fact that Jude does not identify himself as an apostle uh, would indicate that he was not one, and it probably, and it would be uh, one of the other uh, Judes mentioned, uh, mentioned in the Scripture. Now, that raises another interesting question because often when uh, the subject of canonicity is taught, 
it is asserted that all of the New Testament books were written by apostles, but that's not precisely true. Usually what I say is it's written by apostles are those who were uh, within the apostolic community and those who were writing in close association with uh, with the apostles. Now, that's uh, difficult to prove with James and Jude, other than they are both recognized as leaders in the Jerusalem community, which was still a base of operations in the early church for uh, for many of the apostles, even though uh, though they were traveling throughout the uh, the ancient world. Uh, the fact that Jude is accepted, at, that the epistle is accepted as part of the canon, in some of the earliest uh, surviving documents we have uh, from the um, early second century, also supports the fact that the early church had no uh, no problem accepting Jude as part of the uh, as part of the canon. But he doesn't emphasize, call himself an apostle. He doesn't assert apostolic authority. But as a leader in the Jerusalem church, he would have had a recognized authority, especially in the Jewish community of the diaspora. Now, a couple of other things that we could note about Jude uh, that are uh, that we're informed about in the New Testament. He's mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, as a, an evangelist who traveled and took his wife with him. Uh, Paul mentions several others, uh, apostles and teachers who traveled uh, with their wives and were supported by those uh, to whom they ministered, and Jude was one of those. And uh, another important fact, something that is distinct, unique in the epistle of Jude, is that he does something that no other writer in Scripture does. He quotes from apocryphal literature. Now, apocryphal literature is literature that was not accepted as part of the Old Testament Hebrew canon. Now, you will find some of these uh, apocryphal books listed as part of the Old Testament if you look, for example, at a uh, Roman Catholic Bible. But these books, uh, Judith, Tobit, uh, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, uh, Jubilees, some of these other books, Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, uh, that were accepted and called the Apocrypha were never accepted by the Jewish community. And they really do fit within the, the Old Testament period. They're not part of the New Testament. And they're called apocryphal because they made a claim to be scripture, but they were never accepted uh, by uh, the Jewish community at all. I mean, there's never really any discussion about it. They're just never accepted as being part of the uh, Old Testament, as part of the Hebrew scriptures. But they do give us a certain amount of information about the intertestamental period, which is when um, most of them were written. Uh, For example, the book of Enoch is one that is quoted by Jude. And it is not accepted as canonical. But that doesn't mean that these books did not say true things or they did not give to some degree an accurate picture of history or life in the intertestamental period. So they have some value, but they do not have the authority of Scripture. Now, Jude quotes from uh, a couple of these apocryphal books. This does not mean that he authenticates them as Scripture. It simply means that he is citing something said in those works, just as uh, Paul cites from the um, 
Greek pagan poets and philosophers uh, in Athens when he's in Athens in Acts 17:28, and he also quotes from uh, pagan authorities in Titus chapter 1 verses 12 to 13. It doesn't mean that that those writings are inspired by God or have any authority in the church. It just means that that at that particular point, something that is said is true, and we know it's true because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's been brought into Scripture. The two books that Jude references, the two apocryphal books, are first of all the Assumption of Moses, uh, which he quotes in verse 9 of Jude, and also in verses 14 to 15, he uh, quotes from the book of Enoch. So at that point, and just in terms of what is cited by Jude, it is uh, accepted as true. It's used under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to make the point uh, that Jude is making. So Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, is the author of this short epistle. Now, when did he write it? This is the second major point in the outline here. He wrote it approximately... 67 to 68. Uh, this is just a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem. I would tend to think he wrote it probably uh, maybe at the early part of that period uh, prior to the, uh, the, the development of the Jewish revolt, and he's writing from somewhere within the land. He doesn't mention the destruction of Jerusalem, so that in, would indicate that he wrote it before AD 70, and the most likely date would be around 67 or 68. One of the other things that goes into that uh, also would be how we understand its relationship to Second Peter and the message in Second Peter, considering there's a lot of similarity uh, between the two. So the date is, is later in the New Testament period. It's not early like James. It's not the same time as most of the Apostle Paul's writings. Uh, when Jude writes, the Apostle Paul has uh, uh, already been, been martyred in Rome. That occurred around 66, maybe as late as 67. So he's writing right about the time of Paul's death or just a little bit later. Now, why does he write? Well, there's two or three reasons and things we ought to emphasize in terms of the writing. It's an occasion, what called upon him, what was a situation that necessitated his writing, and why is he writing? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that the purpose for this epistle is to warn the church in relation to the infiltration of false teachers. This is the same thing Paul did with the Ephesian pastors in Acts chapter 20. As he was uh, heading back to Jerusalem, he stopped in Miletus, the, the seaport called, which wasn't too far from Ephesus, called for the leaders in Ephesus to come down and to spend some time with him. And uh, in that meeting, he encouraged them, but he also warned them that there would be false teachers that would rise up, even among that group, that they needed to be aware of and be prepared for, and they needed to prepare people so that they would not be sucked into these false doctrines. And so James is doing the same kind of thing where he's warning uh, the church about the infiltration of false teachers who would promote sinful conduct as well as false teaching about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a warning 
that comes from the very beginning to contend, to fight, to struggle for the truth. This is an, has an application for every believer that we are to uh, contend for the faith. And it's very interesting, as we'll see when we get to that passage, that he talks about the faith as it a set body of truth, a set body of doctrine. We're to contend for that set body of doctrine, uh, and we are to uh, fight for it, for that truth that was once for all delivered to the saints, teaching that this is something that is given to the church once for all. It is a set body of doctrine, so it doesn't change over time. This is what's happened in recent years. In the last couple of centuries, there's been this reinterpretation, reevaluation as a result of uh, uh, European or German rationalism coming out of the uh, coming out of the Enlightenment. So we have to contend for the faith, and part of that means that we have to be able to identify what the false teachings are that are prevalent in our generation. We have to understand how these are being presented and how they are seducing Christians into uh, various areas of wrong thinking that violates this faith that has been once for all delivered delivered to the saints. So the false teaching emphasizes two things. Number one, practice or lifestyle or application in terms of promoting sinful conduct or licentiousness. And then the second has to do with uh, teaching false doctrine. And within this epistle, uh, Jude is going to bring forth evidence of how God judges the unbelievers who are responsible for communicating and promoting false doctrine. Uh, he's clearly writing to believers. He is clearly addressing those who are uh, saved, those who are being kept by Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who holds us in his hand, and nothing can cause us cause him to let go of us. He keeps us. We don't keep ourselves by our own uh, by our own actions or behavior. They are addressed as such in verse 1 to those who are called, sanctified. Uh, that's the New King James rendering based on the uh, majority text. We'll get into that later. Sanctified by God the Father and preserved are kept by Jesus Christ. He is the one who, who keeps us. Now, as I pointed out, mentioned a couple of times already in the introduction, there's a lot of similarity between Second Peter and Jude. Uh, they both talk about similar events. They talk about the fallen angels, their revolt against God, the uh, Noahic flood. They talk about certain uh, uh, events in the Old Testament period, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and, uh, and Moses. And it's these similarities that have caused some people to think that that Jude just basically wrote down or, or revised what Peter wrote. There's others who think that Peter did not write, actually write Second Peter uh, for various reasons. And uh, actually uh, what we must understand as we study it is that Jude was, would have had to have been written after uh, Peter. He's reminding his readers of what Peter had said in Second Peter, but his, his focal point is in the present whereas Peter is talking about false teachers that are going to come uh, into the future uh, into the church. So due to this similarity, 
uh, Jude uh, writes about the same events because he's connecting this for his audience so that they understand that he is telling them that the time that Peter had talked about has, has now come. Originally, it seems that Jude had wanted to write about the doctrines of salvation. In the first part of verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. So he originally had one idea. He wanted to write to them about salvation, but due to the, the work of God the Holy Spirit, as God the Holy Spirit works as a, as a supervisor, as it were, one who oversees the, uh, the writing of Scripture through inspiration, one who guided them, uh, the writers of Scripture, to preserve them from error, that he was guiding and directing Jude to write uh, on a different topic than the one he originally uh, intended. And this is because of the presence of these false teachers who had invaded these Jewish Christian congregations, probably in Asia Minor, although we cannot be um, we cannot be uh, dogmatic or certain about that. Uh, but it would fit with what we know about uh, the the two epistles uh, that Peter wrote. So the message of Jude is designed to protect uh, this congregation these readers from the errors that were present at the time. There are also some other reasons, some uh, secondary reasons that he writes. Most of us don't do anything for just one reason. We often have uh, a multitude of reasons or motivations behind the things that we do, and so there are some secondary purposes that are mentioned uh, within this epistle. He wanted, first of all, and primarily to uh, uh, encourage them challenge them to contend for the faith. That is the primary message of this epistle. Second, he also wanted to warn his readers about the apostates and to give them uh, various characteristics of the teaching uh, that uh, was being promoted by these false teachers. He also predicted the imminent judgment of these false teachers, and in his prediction about their judgment, he's talking about that the fact that wants his readers to understand that God judges and will will judge false teachers. So how one handles the truth is presented as something very very serious, and he marshals evidence about this from the way God has judged. Uh, those who opposed him and opposed God's plan in the past. In verse 5, he talks about God's judgment on Egypt. In verse 6, he talks about God's judgment on the angels who rebelled against God and left their original abode. That's going to be a very interesting study when we get there uh, during the time preceding the flood of Noah, God's judgment on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, also... God's judgment in relation to Cain, Balaam, and Korah, who all represent different uh, types of rebellion against God from episodes in the Old Testament. So Jude emphasizes the reality of divine judgment on those who uh, oppose him. So he is also reminding his readers of uh, previous warnings uh, that have been given to them. This is in verses 17 through 19. 
and he is uh, encouraging these believers to grow even in the midst of opposition, even in the midst of apostasy, uh, and that's in verses 20 to 23. And then he closes with a tremendous uh, a benediction, a tremendous closing, uh, emphasizing the fact that, that uh, and reminding them that they're kept not by their power, but by the power of Christ. Uh, verse 24 states, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. So he has various purposes all wrapped around the idea of telling these believers and us that we are to contend for the faith that has been once for all given to the church. Now, I've alluded to the fact that these recipients are Jewish, but what else do we know about these believers? I mean, these uh, recipients, those to whom he was writing. Well, first of all, it's clear that they're believers because they are sanctified by God, that, is, I think, is the preferable reading and translation as you have in the King James and New King James as over against the critical text. We'll get into that more when we uh, get into a, a detailed study of those first verses. We know they're, they're believers. Secondly, we know they're Jewish. We know this because of the similarities between Second Peter and Jude. Uh, we know it because uh, they... Uh, because Jude cites from this Jewish apocryphal literature, uh, the Assumption of Moses and First Enoch. So this is a, a, a literature that they would have in common. Uh, a, a Greek or Gentile audience would not uh, have the, that literature in common. He assumes that they have a, a good knowledge of certain events that are covered in the uh, Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament events about the uh, Noahic flood, Moses, Sodom and Gomorrah, Korah, Cain, Balaam, these things were uh, part of shared knowledge. So he alludes to those things only briefly where we'll have to take a little more time in our study of those things and that um, these would be Jews who were living outside of the land not those who were who were in the land, especially if our date is correct in the late 60s, the, the land would be under turmoil because of the Jewish rebellion uh, against against Rome. Now, as we begin a study, as I pointed out in the past, we sort of uh, take a general idea and approach as to how this material has been organized. What's the structure here? Well, uh, let's just talk a little bit about any book of the Bible as, as being good literature. It's been noted by uh, people, scholars, writers, uh, educators for centuries that the Bible is not only the Word of God, but it also has the characteristics and mark of excellent literature. And like any good literature, any good speech, there are introductions, there are conclusions, and then there's the main body of the uh, of the work. And some uh, some writings in the scripture are poetry, uh, wisdom literature, such as Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, have their own category of literature. You also have historical narrative, uh, for example, the books of Samuel, 
uh, Kings, Chronicles. This is more historical narrative, even though it's written from a divine viewpoint of history so that the events that are included are designed to support a basic thesis uh, of God's uh, indictment of the Jewish people for their failures to uh, live up to the commands of the Mosaic law. So to understand the historical books, we have to understand the framework, especially of Deuteronomy. Uh, We also have the Gospels, which are written to uh, proclaim the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he taught, and above all, uh, the fact that he came to earth and became a man and went to the cross uh, to die for our sins. So there's different categories of literature, and this is epistolary literature, which is much more uh, teach, didactic or teaching in terms of its emphasis. It's instructional. In some cases, it's uh, what is called hortatory, which means uh, which comes from the same root as exhortation. It's really a challenge to people. Um, Hebrews was that way. E- Hebrews it presents several challenges to the uh, Jewish Christian recipients of the epistle of Hebrews. And Jude's the same way. It's presenting a challenge, and that challenge is articulated in the second part of verse 3. Now, what's interesting is we study through Scripture. One of the things that uh, I've noted down through the years, just like any good piece of English literature, when you're writing something, you put your purpose, you state your purpose, and in some sense your organization perhaps, at the very beginning so that people are oriented to your topic. They know where you're going and what you're going to be talking about. And in some cases, this gives us a, 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 an idea of the organization uh, that's going to come. Now, we don't necessarily have that in the beginning of Jude, but we do have a clear purpose statement that he's saying he's writing to exhort them or to challenge them to contend earnestly uh, for the faith. Now, in terms of how he brings together uh, his material in order to accomplish his task, uh, he be- he has a typical uh, style for an epistle. He begins with a greeting, a standard greeting uh, for a letter in the Old Testament would follow, I mean, in the New Testament would follow this pattern, just as when we write a letter, there's a specific f- format that we should have. We should put at the top the uh, address, uh, our own address, who it's from. Then that would be followed uh, in the left margin by the address uh, of the person to whom uh, the letter is going. Then this is followed by a dear so-and-so or to whom it may concern some form of address of that nature. Then there's the body of the letter, and then there is a closing and a signature. In the ancient world, they would front-load the material about the author and the recipients so that the first thing that you would read when you looked at a, a letter would be the author. So you would know right away who was writing you, and uh, then they would say also say something about themselves. And typically they would have a, a, a greeting. In the Jewish community, the standard greeting was from the word shalom, meaning peace or health in some cases, but usually it's translated something along the lines of peace. In the Greek community, it was uh, a form of the word for grace, karen. Uh, grace. And so 
the New Testament writers took both of these standard ways of greeting and and in their world, and they combined them under the influence uh, and guidance of God the Holy Spirit so that they they had a theological nuance to them that went beyond just a standard formulaic, formulaic uh, greetings or peace. And by combining them, for example, Paul typically says grace to you and peace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Peace is the result of experiencing the unmerited favor of God in our our lives. And so the combination of of these two uh, concepts together brings about something that is uh, completely or or totally uh, new. Now Jude, who has a Jewish background, adds has a different greeting than the Apostle Paul. Rather than grace to you and peace, he begins, uh, mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So he's emphasizing the mercy of God, which is uh, related to his grace, but it's the expression, it's the more personalized, more individualized expression of God's grace in the life of an individual. Because we are recipients of God's mercy, we have peace. As Paul says in Romans 5, we have peace with God because of the work of Christ on the cross. So there no longer exists a state of animosity or enmity between the believer and God. That that, that wall of division, that wall of sin has been broken down and there is now harmony. And because of that, love can then be, uh, uh, we can then express true love, genuine love, which is part of the evidence that every believer should have for his faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I give it in uh, John 13, 33 and 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And uh, that by this, all men will know uh, that you are my disciples. So we have the greeting in verses 1 and 2. Then we have a closing or a benediction in verses 24 and 25. And I want you to notice that there is a, a parallel between the two. In the greeting, he uh, addresses them as those who are uh, called, uh, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved or kept by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, in the closing, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, stumbling has been the thrust of this epistle, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory uh, with exceeding joy. So it picks up that some of those same themes, a reminder that, that they are kept by Jesus Christ no matter what, the opposition may be, no matter what failures there may be, it is Jesus Christ who, who keeps us. So we have a standard greeting in the first two verses. The purpose, the reason for his writing is given in verses 3 and 4. The purpose of the epistle where he states is to exhort them to contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Verse 4, the reason that they need to contend earnestly is because certain men have crept in unnoticed, so it's a present tense reality now. 
Uh, long ago, they were designated or marked out for condemnation. They're called ungodly men. Now, one of the decisions and one of the studies we have to go through is to understand the meaning of this word ungodly. And it does not refer to carnal Christians. The word is used again and again in Scripture to indicate unbelievers. It's never used to indicate believers. So these are unbelievers who have uh, crept in, who are teaching a licentious view of the grace of God. They're perverting the grace of God, and they're also denying uh, doctrines related to the Lord Jesus Christ, his deity and his uh, completed work on the cross. So the purpose is stated in verses 3 and 4, and then uh, in the development of his argument, the first thing that Jude is going to do is to uh, emphasize the fact that these are serious matters, that those who are unbelievers, those who are responsible for uh, distracting and for uh, perverting the faith of believers will come under divine judgment. And so he gives evidence of how God is involved in history, that he is not just some God who is far away, but he is personally involved in history and he personally judges those who oppose his plan. And evidence is given from uh, Egypt and God's destruction of Egypt at the time of the Exodus in verse 5. In verse 6, he reminds them of the judgment of God against the angels who uh, entered into human history as the sons of of God who took the daughters of men in Genesis 6 as their wives. And so they are uh, now in judgment, reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. Sodom and Gomorrah... uh, and God's judgment of Sodom in Gomorrah, verse 7. And then um, in verse 9, he speaks of Michael, the archangel, and Moses, and showing that uh, there is a line of authority. And, and there are certain things even the highest of the angels will not do in terms of stepping out from under uh, God's authority because of the reality of divine judgment. And so this is mentioned in in verse 9. Verse 10 gives us an idea of the the content, the teaching uh, of of these false teachers. They're compared, they're they're said to be evil. Uh, They are like brute beasts, and they uh, they corrupt the truth. And so there's a... uh, announcement of woe or judgment, verse 11, with a reference to Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Then in verse 12, having moved from a an understanding and a reminder of the reality of divine judgment in history, then there's a focus on who these false teachers are and what they teach in verses 12 and following. Uh, their, how they come in, how they have uh, come into the church and how they have disguised themselves and the uh, consequences of their, uh, of their infiltration. Uh, there's a citation from the book of Enoch in verse 14 and, um, and 15, and then they are further described in verses uh, uh, 16 and following as in terms of their character 
and how they are uh, truly false teachers. The conclusion of verse 19 is one we'll have to spend some time on. It's typically mistranslated and misunderstood in almost every English version. I don't know any English version that actually translates this verse correctly. And then starting in verse 20, we have the positive uh, command of... um, of Jude. I want you to notice just by way of, of um, a proportion here, a biblical example of, of proportion. Sometimes people say, well, you know, you're just teaching too much depth, number one. That's one criticism. Another criticism is it, it, often it seems negative as opposed to positive. We live in a world that loves positive thinking. And so many of the uh, televangelists that we see, they're quite popular on TV, are very positive. They never say anything negative. They just want to build people up. They don't want to criticize or critique any kind of thinking. But that's not what we have here. Jude spends the from verse 3, where he warns of the danger of false teachers, down through verse 19, identifying all of the negatives about the false teachers, and he spends four verses, 20, 21, 22, and 23, focusing on the positive command. Now, that is just the opposite in terms of proportion that we have in terms of the modern understanding of how to win friends, win people to your congregation, and how to build a big, strong congregation. So there's a lot of emphasis on the negatives and the wrong things that are taught and why it's wrong and and then just a little on the positive. And in verses 20 to 23, we have this emphasis on the positive, that they are to build themselves up uh, on your most holy faith. Notice the building up, the edification, the spiritual strength comes from the faith, comes from doctrine. It doesn't come from uh, wonderful stories and nice little narratives and motivational speaking. It comes from understanding truth and praying uh, in fellowship, praying by means of God the Holy Spirit. It emphasizes personal responsibility and volition in the believer's life to keep yourselves in the love of God. That is a synonym for staying in fellowship and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That has to do with anticipating the future or, as I've said with, in our study with, in Hebrews, uh, living today in light of eternity. And then verse 22, the application of mercy, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others, uh, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. Now, that'll be a lot of fun to uh, uh, go through those two verses because they relate to how believers are to be involved in the life of those who are being uh, sucked in to false uh, false doctrine and false teaching. And then uh, we come to the conclusion, uh, wrapping things up at the end. Now, this gives us the overview. Next time we'll come back and I want to address a few other things related to introduction, such as uh, canonicity and some other things, and then we will get into the specifics of the first verse. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time to study your word, to get into uh, this uh, epistle, the challenges that it will bring to us in terms of our own personal walk with you to contend earnestly uh, for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. We pray that you would use this to challenge each of us in our own spiritual life and spiritual walk, that we might become more 
uh, convinced of the truth of what we believe and that we might contend even more for the truth, understanding its significance than we ever had before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.